My name's Mandy Chivers. Um, I'm uh, the Director of Quality and Innovation for Mersey Care. Um, our theme is um, Connect. And as some of you probably may know, we've had a huge campaign across the NHS that's looking at public mental health and well-being around the five ways. And I think Carol, who introduced this series, mentioned them. So we've got Connect to ourselves internally and to each other and the things that matter to us in life. Take notice, so instead of being on automatic pilot all the time, actually be aware of your surroundings and what's going on for you in the moment. Um, keep learning, give, so that's volunteering or small acts of kindness to other people and um, be active. Please come forward if you feel comfortable. So they're the five ways to well-being. They're evidence-based and they show that they can add seven and a half years to your life. So I would, my invitation to you today is to perhaps ponder on some of that in terms of your own health and well-being and how you can get, get the most out of this conference. Okay, in terms of uh, public mental health and well-being, the need to connect with ourselves internally, and we've heard about the power of emotion and human rights and memory, is critical. It's also critical that we connect with each other, and particularly in this tsunami of um, uh, health needs that we've got in this country now, a growing, a growing aging population, one in four people in this country have a mental health issue at some stage in their lives. It's really important that we connect with each other and find some creative and innovative ways to share our resources, to understand our strengths and our offer with each other and to work together creatively to improve the um, health and well-being of us all and the population, because we are the population, we are the community. So we need to invest in that for our own liberation and for the health and well-being of each other. Liverpool has got a very strong history of a number of strategic alliances across sectors to improve um, mental health and well-being for a number of years. We've worked in 2004, our organisation, Mersey Care, seconded a clinician, who's a, an occupational therapist, into the cultural sector for four years leading up to um, Liverpool being the capital of culture to actually foster these kinds of strategic alliances and relationships and to bring to the fore that health and well-being belongs to us all. It isn't just the NHS. Okay, so what we've got in this um, strand this morning is three great examples of some of those partnerships. And the speakers, fantastic speakers, are going to share some of their ideas and programmes in exploring creative and innovative approaches to using our resources differently here in Liverpool to improve well-being. We're very sad that James, the first speaker, is unable to join us. But what we're going to do is have about um, 15 minutes for each speaker. And then if it's okay with everybody, we'll have a chat at the end and questions and answers. Um, just a few housekeeping um, issues before I introduce the first speaker. There are no fire alarms due this morning, tests. So if you hear a fire alarm, please use... I've always wanted to do this. <laughs> These exits at the side there and move quickly to them. Um, we are... Um, going to have a minute silence at 11 o'clock and I understand that we will be alerted to that through the ether somewhere from the guys at the back and we will stand and um, reflect for, for a minute. Um, okay so without further ado I'd like to introduce our first speaker who is Jill Pendleton. Now Jill is our lead for dementia in Liverpool. She's also um, an occupational therapist with Mersey Care NHS Trust. Jill. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, I'd like to um, just give a little bit of background, a little bit of context to this. So um, I've worked with people with dementia for, uh, well, the whole of my working life, really. And the culture of care has been less than great for a long um, period of that time. But over the last few years, um, things have really started to change and really um, 
as a society perhaps move to a greater understanding of, of dementia. And um, this presentation is kind of talking about some of the um, links and projects that we have um, up and running for people um, living with dementia at the moment. So to kick off, any ideas about what that is? A cell, any, what kind of cell? A brain cell, it is in fact a brain cell, yes. Yeah. So that is a very pretty looking brain cell. The brains that I've seen are all a bit gray and uninteresting, but that's nice and colorful. Um, but what that shows you is two brain cells and the blue part in the middle is where they need to connect. And our theme for today is connect. And I was thinking about that in terms of um, people with dementia and, and also in terms of what's happening to them internally and what's happening externally as well. So internally, um, people with dementia are faced with this condition, which is breaking down connections between brain cells. And actually, we have millions of brain cells, but they start deteriorating from the age of 19. So in terms of numbers, we start losing brain cells. So I guess that puts a group of us in a risky category um, today. Um, but those brain cells need to be really healthy to maintain connections. And conditions like Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia all threaten those connections. And if there's actually one tip for um, prevention, it's around healthy diet and exercise. So for kind of a, our audience today, um, we can actually take some control of, of that ourselves in terms of um, healthy diets, because we need all those nutrients to maintain the connections. What happens then is the connections start to let start to fail and information takes a long time to be processed and that means that people who are connected through memory and I think that was kind of very clear from the first presentation start to feel really um, have doubts about kind of their self-identity where they fit in in the world that often leads to um, a lack of confidence and also a kind of failure then to want to connect and actually what's really essential is maintaining connections. So there's connections inside the person and there's uh, connections externally. And some of the projects that we're talking about this morning are around maintaining those external connections. Okay, so um, this is our vision at Merseycare. So I'm an OT working at Merseycare and the vision the, the kind of words that are mentioned there and jump out are recovery and well-being and um, being well is more than um, just having a tablet and just feeling physically fit isn't it it's around really having a sense of well-being and it's actually possible to live well with mental health um, issues and dementia if the right kind of support and connections are there okay what we've tended to do is work in isolation. A lot of us work within our own organizations. And I was kind of found this really pretty picture of an island. I was thinking, you know, it looks lovely, but actually it's very limited. And I guess that's the same around our, our own organizations and the way that we work. We can do so much, but actually the potential um, is limited within our own organizations. And what we really need to do is reach out and make those connections with others. These are really difficult economic times. And, you know, we're finding that resources are being cut in the community. People, things that people have taken for granted for a long time, those services are under threat. So we need to start thinking differently. Okay. And the older um, I get, um, the more I see that actually life is about the relationships that we have and the relationships with each other, but also in terms of our professional um, background, the relationships that we create with other organizations. And there's been some massive changes over um, the past sort of couple of years in Liverpool that I think colleagues will go on to describe, which is around interlinking and making connections so that we can make a greater impact in terms of the health and social um, economy. So this was me taking my vitamins this morning. Um, but I guess the, the idea around health is 
There's more to, to being well than just our traditional view of being well, which is all kind of around, you know, going to the doctor, he'll fix it, he'll give us something to fix it. But certainly with conditions like dementia, that isn't the case. And so being well is around having a sense of purpose, having an opportunity to have a good time, which is really difficult for a lot of people in the way that we support them at the moment. Feeling valued, having a sense of pleasure, being able to build relationships, and developing social networks. And I work with um, a, a large group of people who are living with dementia, and the thing they most value is the opportunity to meet with other people who are going through the same kind of things um, and having those kind of social networks. So they're really, really essential. And they're actually the things that are most under threat at the moment because of all the um, economic difficulties that we face. So I guess everybody here is from different places, but Liverpool certainly is a diverse and resource-rich city. And more recently, um, we've been thinking about making some partnerships and enabling um, people to use the resources that we have in a different way. Okay? And, and this is just the same kind of message again, that we need to think, get out of our kind of boxes, um, because actually the way that we do things now is economically unsustainable, certainly for the ageing population and certainly for, for people that are living with dementia. So we need to think differently and be more creative and more innovative in the way that we're thinking about linking things together for people. Okay. And developing partnerships to promote um, recovery and living well. So I've never actually had chilli and chocolate crisps before. I've had chilli chili chocolate. Um, so this is an unusual partnership. And I suppose the point that I wanted to make is actually we sometimes don't think about all the resources that are out there and how we can connect for people. And certainly museums in terms of... Um, people who are kind of challenged with memory. That's a real kind of um, place where, you know, those roots can be really uh, enriched for people. Okay, so we just, I'm going to tell you about some projects that um, we've got um, over the last year or so uh, in Liverpool. So this is a picture that I'll get killed for by Kim for using, but it's just, I want to draw your attention to the logo in the background. 2013's been the year of dementia awareness in Liverpool, and that has involved up to about 30 different partners coming together around the table. So a lot of creative partners, museums, House of Memories have been really integral in that. Um, all sorts of partners connecting together. So we've had football clubs, police, fire service to try and together start to um, address some of the kind of compelling issues around dementia. So that's not going to finish. Um, that's going to become the Dementia Action Alliance. And I guess in the kind of cities and towns that you're all from, those kind of um, the, the drive to set up Dementia Action Alliances is really big and that might be an opportunity to connect with other people in that way. Okay. In Liverpool, we've also got the Pass on the Memories programme from Everton in the community. Um, Everton have been amazing in terms of supporting um, this year of dementia and um, have really embraced the... Um, idea of bringing what they have um, and using it in a different way. So they run, um, with Mersey Care, they run reminiscence projects, but they also run a sort of um, peer support group for people. So that's just a, a way of creating something and bringing um, people together in, in, le in less traditional ways, I suppose. Um, and they've also been very supportive in terms of fundraising. Okay, and then um, the House of Memories project, which starts in Liverpool and has, um, oh, it's just spread so quickly, the word around House of Memories. So actually using the unique resources that the museum have um, to engage in a different way and enable 
um, all sorts of health and social care staff to learn how to engage with people with dementia. And I know that that will be covered in more detail in other presentations. But again, it's, you know, it's bringing together and looking for need and looking at how we can meet um, need from the resources that we have within the city. Okay. And then um, this is another project that's happening in Liverpool this year, which is called Innovate Dementia. That's a European project. And that's actually bringing service users and um, businesses and health and social care professionals together to innovate. So again, uh, that's something that House of Memories are linking in with in terms of um, getting people with dementia to actually inform um, the way that 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 service develops. So it's again around bringing, um, and bringing people together and, and forming connections to come up with new ideas and new ways of, of working. Okay. And one of my uh, things I really believe in is about involving the people that know best. So if you are seeing a gap and something that you would like to um, start um, working on, it needs to be rooted in the experience who, of the people that are, are walking that journey, really. So, um, you know, if it's working with older people, working with people with dementia, working with children, whoever it might be, seeing what the need is from their perspective. Because I think a lot of the time we've made the mistake of us deciding and then taking things to people rather than it being something that is, is um, joined from the beginning. Okay. And so I guess in terms of shared agendas and opportunities um, for partnership, the agenda is, um, which I guess Paul will be talking about later, is definitely about enabling people to live well with whatever condition that they're going through, okay? That resources are being dramatically cut at the moment, and I think certainly in Liverpool we face more um, cuts over the next year. So... I guess the gaps are looking at kind of those services that are being cut and, and thinking about opportunities wisely. Um, certainly within dementia, it's around enabling people to live well uh, with dementia and, and have opportunities to be stimulated to connect with others for peer support. And the more connected that people are, the more likely they are to remain well and independent. I guess in terms of bids, um, for funding and things, they're more likely to be successful if they involve different partners, if they are um, innovative, and if they're targeted wisely. And the agenda, which isn't going away, is the huge ageing population. Okay? And I guess the, the essential component to that is involving service users and carers. So we've just heard from Jill who works in um, a specialist mental health trust. So we've got a range of speakers. Ed um, is the performance manager with Riverside Housing Group. So we've got a housing partner here and later we'll hear Paul who works with a clinical commissioning group in Liverpool. Um, who's a project manager for the MI um, which is more independent program, which is a massive assisted, assistive living program in Liverpool. Uh, I'm from the Riverside Group, which is one of the largest providers um, of housing in the UK. Um, more commonly, they're known as housing associations. And um, I was asked to come along and uh, talk to you guys today about how we as a housing association have engaged and worked with uh, the museum in Liverpool. Um, just before I get into some of that work um, in terms of what we've done with the museum, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background about us as an organisation because it'll hopefully um, get you thinking about some of the areas where you've come from today and how you can possibly engage yourself um, with either Riverside or with other housing associations. Um, so as I said, we're one of the largest providers of housing in the UK and we've got um, over 55,000 properties nationally. Um, we're more than just bricks and mortar, or more than uh, being about just bricks and mortar. As a company, um, you know, we try and do a lot of work within the communities in which we operate. And our uh, strapline is transforming lives and revitalizing neighborhoods. So that means that in addition to the bricks and mortar and the houses that we offer, um, we have a range of community-based services um, where potentially you guys can look to utilize some of your areas in 
These cover um, areas such as digital inclusion. You know, Liverpool's got very low levels and poor levels of digital inclusion, especially um, in older people. Um, we offer information and um, services around money advice and money welfare, so that could be maximising benefits, but also, you know, looking at money management and helping people manage their own budgets. And then we also offer a range of services um, in respect to care and support. So that's looking after elderly adults, it's looking after vulnerable residents, but also younger um, people within the community, homeless, and um, as I said, the full, uh, full cross-section of people um, out there within the country. So I'm aware that you guys um, have come from um, what I thought was all around the UK, but uh, obviously after the first presentation this morning, um, you know, people are here, you know, from as far as Chile and beyond. So just to kind of, you know, put that into co uh, context within Riverside, we're not just within Liverpool. Um, we did start in Liverpool, um, and that's where the, the company um, originated. And we do have... Um, over, as I said, um, of the 55,000 properties, just over half of them are in Liverpool, but, but we are also in other areas of the country, um, in addition to Liverpool. We've got um, 2,000 properties up in Irving in Scotland. Um, we've got um, over 6,000 properties in Carlisle. Um, and we've also got um, about 2,000 properties over in Hull, um, now, you might be thinking at the minute, you know, so what? What does that mean for me? You know, how can, um, you know, a housing provider, you know, come and tell us anything about what we can do and how we can, you know, possibly look at new and different ways of working? Um, but when I was asked to come and speak today, I actually, you know, did a little bit of research in some of the, the areas that we have, the houses, um, and, you know, had a look around um, to see what I could find out about some of those places. And the one thing that I did find was that in each one of those areas in the communities that we're in, there's museums. Um, and what I found was there's not just, you know, the odd museum or one museum, but there's loads. I mean, even in Hull, you know, I actually was surprised to find that there's actually a whole area of the country that's dedicated to museums with the museum's quarter. So it got me thinking about, you know, how, you know, we can do more, you know, not just with Liverpool Museum, but also looking to work, you know, beyond um, the communities within Liverpool. Um, obviously, in terms of working um, with the museum, you know, it meant that we had to, um, you know, we were in a situation where we had to meet some of the key challenges that we have as an organisation and that we have um, as an industry. Um, one of the biggest problems that we have um, with, um, as a housing association is that we have an ageing population as an organisation, we've got over 220 sheltered schemes across the UK, um, but also within our general needs properties, um, over 50% um, of the population in our general needs properties are over the age of 50. Um, so, you know, supporting and helping, you know, an older population is becoming more and more important for us as an organisation as to how we meet the challenges of the future. You know, within those properties, dementia, again, is becoming um, more important. Um, with over 700,000 pe 700, people in the UK suffering from dementia, um, with that figure predicted to rise above 1 million by um, 2030. Um, one important point to note on that is the fact that that's just um, cases of dementia that's diagnosed. What we find within our housing stock, um, when we're looking at putting support, support plans in place, is that that problem is an awful lot bigger than some of the figures that are actually reported. Another challenge that we have within housing, um, which I'm sure you guys will all have the same issues, it's around the funding cuts. We've had um, big cuts within funding around supporting people and how we support and help older people. Um, but there's also been the government's welfare reform um, and the bedroom tax that you'll probably have all um, heard about over the last 12 months, um, which has been getting a lot more uh, press and publicity um, you know, some of these um, changes in the welfare reform are going to put more um, demands on, our, um, on the people who live in our properties, but it's also having to make us think as an organisation about how we can offer better value for money and thinking about the partnerships that we can um, move forward with going forward. 
Another of the challenges um, is health inequalities. Um, within Liverpool, um, it's not a massive geographical area, but um, if you look at the subcategories of the neighbourhoods, um, there can be a difference of seven years in terms of life expectancy from one neighbourhood to the next. And we're talking literally um, a neighbourhood in Liverpool where the life expectancy is seven years higher than a neighbouring neighbourhood that's only two miles away. And that, that's a, a massive difference and a massive challenge because a lot of the communities that we work in um, as a housing association, you know, are some of the poorest and most deprived communities within the UK. So looking at these challenges, um, we've had to think about how we can do things differently, as I mentioned, and how we can start to look to work with new partners um, to offer that value for money. And it was really um, in trying to tackle some of these challenges that led to us um, making the connection with the museum in Liverpool um, and moving forward with them um, around their House of Memories programme. Um, I'm not sure how much you guys um, know about that, but um, within the museum, within Liverpool, um, it's, you know, it's a fantastic um, building and it's a fantastic um, place for people to come and visit, but you know, they recognised um, that you know, in housing all these memories, there was the linkages and the connections that could be made with dementia and with the communities um, that we have within Liverpool. Um, through connections um, with the health authorities, um, we were able to access um, the work that was going on within the House of Memories programme and it was through discussions that actually led to them amending that programme, which initially started out as an awareness programme for dementia, and then it started to become a more specialist programme to help support social and healthcare bodies. And, you know, we thought, well, hey, why can't we do something from that with the housing perspective? Um, the museum um, in Liverpool um, then tailored that programme to meet our needs as a housing provider. Um, and on the back of that... Um, it's meant that not just Riverside um, staff, but also other housing associations got involved in the programme um, and were able to make use um, of the museum and you know, the space um, and the memories that are on offer there um, for people within Liverpool. In terms of the partnership um, that we've developed with the museum, I think it's been a win-win. Um, from a Riverside perspective, you know, what we've taken from the programme and working with the museum is training and understanding We've had over um, 60 Riverside staff go through the House of Memories programme. And one thing that that brings um, is a level of consistency to how we support people um, across the country. You know, that's really important because as a big organisation that is nationwide, um, we need to have confidence that the support and the care services that we're offering are consistent, whether you are in Irving or Hull or down in London or Liverpool. Um, through working with the museum, um, it got us thinking more as well about other opportunities that we could have as a housing association. And it's not been the only factor, but you know, the House of Memories and the work we've done with them you know, has led to us looking at the way we deliver services. And it's actually helping us shape and rewrite our corporate strategy for the next five years. Um, as an organisation, you know, we've now made the decision that we want to be an industry expert around dementia. We're looking at um, ensuring that all our premises, um, public premises going forward are dementia friendly. And we're also making that commitment to uh, train our staff um, beyond Liverpool with the House of Memories programme. I think from the museum perspective, um, through working with us, hopefully what it might have done is, you know, increase the level of footfall. It's brought people in that might necessarily not have come to the museum um, beforehand. Um, as I mentioned, the training that we did in conjunction with the museum, it wasn't just our staff that went through that training programme as a housing provider. There were six or seven other housing associations that got involved. Um, so across the programme um, in October alone, there's probably about 500 housing professionals that have gone through the House of Memories training programme. Um, from the museum's perspective, I guess, um, you know, that's a new income stream, or that's been a new income stream for the museum because each of the housing associations, along with ourselves, contributed um, financial commitment to the programme in order to roll that training out to their staff. It's also um, 
brought a level of national coverage as well to the programme, which led to, I know, um, that the museum and Riverside were also mentioned in a parliamentary debate around the work that we were doing together um, around dementia, but also, you know, the work that we're doing from an innovative um, a new way of working. There have been other spin-offs as well. Um, my colleague Paul um, from the, the Health Authority is going to speak next, and he's going to um, talk more about the Smart House, which is an exhibition that we've actually got within the museum um, that's, you know, been a spin-off um, of the work that we've done with um, the museum and the House of Memories programme. Um, finally, I mean, for ourselves, um, as well as, you know, training being important and, you know, the business opportunities that we're looking to sustain our services, um, very simply, the work that we've done with the museum is just the right thing to do. You know, dementia is a big issue. It's only going to get bigger. And as a housing provider that has a responsibility socially, um, you know, tackling this issue and um, that work is just the right thing to do. Um, finally, um, the work that we've done with the museum, um, you know, was an opportunity for ourselves. But I think that, you know, for many of you across the country, um, there's going to be plenty of other opportunities to engage with housing providers as well. Um, there is over 1,000 housing providers in the UK, um, and there's actually over 2,000 museums. So I can pretty much safely say that wherever you guys are, within a mile or two, there will be a housing association that is housing people um, and that's looking to build and develop communities. Um, one problem that we always have um, as a housing association is around tenant consultation and getting tenants to be involved within the work that we do. Um, you know, a neighbouring housing um, association in Manchester, you know, in order to get the numbers that they wanted um, at their annual um, consultation event, um, they had to, or the idea that they came up with was to um, bust the people into Chester Zoo um, because they were looking to create an interest and some reason for people to want to get involved and want to, um, you know, come and hear what they had to say. And, you know, it was a pretty innovative idea, but it just shows that how difficult it is getting people um, to engage. So again, similarly to Chester Zoo, I mean, what you guys have is some, you know, fantastic spaces, some fa fantastic areas with, um, you know, some really interesting things going on that, you know, could be a pull factor to bring people into the museum. Um, as well as the tenant consultation, you know, a big issue we have in housing, um, is reaching people that are, um, that are difficult to engage with. You know, we've done some other work with um, the football club in Liverpool um, around trying to engage middle-aged men um, who naturally aren't that bothered, you know, by their own health. Um, you, know, there's other, you know, there's other more important matters going on um, in their lives around their family, you know, their income, paying the bills. Um, so again, it was about thinking about new ways um, that we can engage with other people. Um, so again, it's just thinking about the spaces that you've got and the opportunities that you can afford the communities um, within your museums. Um, moving on, social isolation, again, is a big issue. Um, and a great thing about museums is the fact that, um, you know, it's just simply a good day out. Um, I know in Liverpool you've got, um, the, or in Liverpool we're lucky enough to have the education rooms and the cafes um, and, you know, there are big pull factors that the museums can have to bring people in around engagement and tackling issues like social isolation. And finally, um, you know, the big reason that kind of led me to be here today is the partnership approach with the health authorities and also the museums um, that have the linkages to the health and well-being. So it's just about tapping into those um, factors within your local communities and seeing how you can possibly look to engage with housing associations yourselves. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Ed. Um, we'll take questions shortly. Um, our final speaker works for one of our clinical commissioning groups. And um, if those of you are not familiar with the restructuring in the NHS, the clinical commissioning groups are the people who now 
have the taxpayers' money in order to spend it on health and well-being across the community. And within this, in Liverpool, is a very innovative project that Paul, this is Paul Clitheroe, who's the project manager for the More Independence Programme at Liverpool. As the population of the world grows, medical science keeps us alive longer. The cost of care and health have increased. And in the UK, they've increased way beyond the imagination of the architects of the welfare state. But governments across the world have, um, have recognised that care and health services have got to be delivered in a different way. And technology has been identified as one of the answers, in some quarters, the answer. Um, the World Health Organization, just check my slides so yeah, the World Health Organization um, has estimated that globally there are, there are a billion adults who are overweight, 860 million people with long-term conditions such as diabetes, respiratory problems, mental health, bone and joint issues, and 600 million people over the age of 60. So in the UK alone, it's expected that in the next decade, healthcare will be funded by fewer than 30% of the population. Um, so, we'll be, so most of us sitting here will be funding the care of the, uh, the or will be, um, will be um, covering the cost of the ageing population. In Liverpool, we've got 41% of the population who have a long-term condition and 24% of the population who experience symptoms of that condition which limit their activity. So, health and care services as currently provided are not sustainable. So, in the UK, with the welfare state, we've got expectation here in terms of how health and care services should be delivered. And we've got this much dosh in the pot. And I'm getting on a bit now, but no politicians really had any discussion with me about how we bridge that gap. How do we bridge that expectation of and funding gap? So realistically, we're not going to drop our expectations. We're not going to expect more from the state. So how are we going to get, how are we going to, how are we going to fill that capacity gap? Are we going to put more money in through taxation? We haven't, we haven't started the political discussion about that. Are we going to start to fund things privately? We know it's out there. We've, we work in the public sector. We know that, that the influence of the private sector is sneaking in, but we really haven't had that debate. So that's the challenge. That, that gap is the challenge. So NHS terms, nationally, 80 billion. We've uh, funded NHS services, and we've got about, well, it varies, but apparently over the next few years, we've got to find 30 billion to... So we've got a 30 billion pound hole in NHS services. So there's lots of work globally and nationally to work out how we're gonna plug that gap. In the UK, one of the programs um, that's considering this is, uh, is Dallas, which is delivering assisted living lifestyles at scale, rolls off the tongue, which is a 25 million pound research and development program run by the Technology Strategy Board, which is part of uh, UKTLC and part of BIS. Um, so, the so the push for this is definitely a push around transforming the NHS and um, local care services through, um, through, a te through technology. And if we get this right, government believes that that's not just a win for NHS and care services, it's also a win for UK PLC, that we can lead the world in technology-supported health and care services. The Dallas programme has contracted four large consortia um, across the UK to look at how technology can be applied to the challenge. And... This technology is interchangeably known as telehealth, telecare, mHealth, eHealth. And it's technology deployed to support health care and well-being. So it's not just about dementia or mental health, it's across the spectrum. At the more acute end of the spectrum, eHealth or mHealth applied correctly can have a significant impact on, uh, on NHS services. Um, the bottom one's really interesting, 45% reduction in mortality rates. If you're in the NHS service, start asking for technology. And this is personal, really. You've got to start thinking about this as being a personal agenda, not an NHS or a social care service agenda. This is personal. 
Um, but even better than the, uh, the figures here, I haven't said that, 45% reduction in mortality rates, that's pretty good. But even better than that, technology, if you apply it correctly, um, if it's really grabbed hold of, um, it can make life easier for us all. So um, how many of you sitting out there can actually book a GP appointment online? Anybody? Ooh, a couple. It's getting better. Uh, what about having a Skype consultation at a clinic? Anybody tried that? So currently, the way the system works, it's, it's not really person-centered. It's not, it's not fantastic. Um, so in Liverpool, we are really trying to explore this um, issue of not just technology for technology's sake, but technology to really help us all to make life easier to help improve independence, to increase, increase the amount of control that people, that we have as consumers of care and health services, to improve levels of self-care, i.e. keeping people out of the system rather than letting people get into the system, stuck in the system and having to be reliant on services that are in there. And um, even though um, this is... Uh, I've said that this is a technology project, but actually that's what we're trying to achieve with technology. So it's technology to accelerate the drive to these points. What we've found over the last 12 to 18 months or so in delivering this is people love technology. They really like technology. It engages people in discussions. And the NHS really, really struggle to, Ed talked about engaging tenants in dialogue, um, in consultation. The NHS really struggles to get people in, interested in their, their own health. People are not really, really that bothered about their health. Even people, even the people, when you're talking to people who are really, really ill, really poorly, and being told that the, their health is gonna, um, is gonna mean an, a, a premature death, they tend to kind of glaze over once you get into the conversation. Now that, that could be that the NHS and social care use, services use the wrong language. But what we found is that as we drill down and we start to have, have those discussions, people rarely have space to care and do stuff about their health, usually because they've got more pressing things in their life that they need to do or they want to do. So for, the pe for people who are less economically active, um, individuals and communities who, who are poor. Uh, these may be issues relating to debt, the welfare reforms that Ed talked about, poor housing, care and responsibilities. So people won't engage in those discussions about self-care, about control, about booking their GP appointments online and not going to A&E services when there's community services on the doorstep that they could use until they start to feel safe. So get things right, help people to feel safe, secure, and they'll start to engage in the more as uh, discussions about the more esoteric aspects of life and health fits in that, um, fits in that more esoteric area of discussion. Uh, for more economically active people, people sitting in the room today, I assume, life gets in the way. Uh, things they like to do gets in the way. Kids, work, play, culture, shopping, biggie, all the stuff people are more interested in. So it's very difficult for us in the NHS to communicate and within my project, within my, within my um, talking about healthcare and technology supported, supported self-care, we really, really struggle. So uh, we needed a plan B. How do we start to communicate? How do we start to push, push the messages out? Um, and what we, began to do is partner those organizations that are delivering stuff that people like and need to do. So over on your, um, over on the left-hand side of the, uh, the screen there, care organizations, health organizations um, that people have to go to, have to use because they're in desperate need, pulling this way, the things that people like to do, which includes our cultural offer in the, uh, in the city, and we found that uh, you guys, as Ed's already said, are really, really good at reaching large numbers of people. And uh, our colleagues in National Museums Liverpool are working with us to get health messages out. Now, 
don't think that there's going to be uh, huge amounts of, uh, of, of, of thousands of pounds available from the NHS at this current um, time um, to uh, engage in this dialogue. This is about you guys taking a punt, building the relationships that you need to build. And it may, I think it probably will, um, inform new business opportunities. Uh, done correctly, it will reduce your funding risks in future. Uh, and perhaps more, on, more importantly, um, it'll help you as individuals, and again, this comes back to the personal, to start to understand the NHS, the healthcare messages, because the challenges are real, and the challenges are going to start to affect you personally. Okay, thank you very much uh, to our three speakers. That's a really interesting journey through three different perspectives in terms of partnerships and sharing resources and thinking forward. We've got about five minutes left because I know there's a tight crossover between this and the next um, session. So I'd just like to ask if any of you have got any questions for our panellists. And we've got Ellie and Izzy with Mike somewhere. If you could stand up and just say your name and where you're from and ask a question, that would be wonderful. I'm Sam Cairns um, from the Cultural Learning Alliance. One of the questions I had was, what are the job titles people should seek out? So if you're trying to contact people, say, in the Housing Association or any of the organisations, who are the people who are going to want to talk to someone from museums? Um, from a housing perspective, um, you'll find that um, it will either be through the customer services um, route where there'll be um, uh, people who are looking after all of the customer services or it might be through kind of a community engagement route. I mean, within Riverside ourselves, we have quite a large community engagement team because it's quite a big operation getting across, um, you know, ensuring that we've got coverage across all the communities. So um, I'd say generally either customer services or um, community engagement should be able to help. Um, there's also a bit of a shift now where um, health is becoming more important on the agenda for housing. And, you know, people are looking at um, new roles and titles around sort of health and well-being and care as well. So um, some of the more forward-thinking ones, you might find some opportunities via those routes. I would say in uh, NHS terms, anybody you can get hold of because um, not, well, not all NHS practitioners are as open-minded and creative as the people that you're seeing sitting <laughs> in front of you here. So just grab, grab anybody yeah. you can. I would just add to that. I mean, in Liverpool, we're fortunate because we've really invested in it and we've got quite a holistic approach to understanding health and well-being and we have invested, but the heydays are over and it is about thinking differently together. One of the very recent things that might be worth you thinking about is, and having a lot Googling, um, so councils have set up health and well-being boards and there's been a lot of um, dialogue recently that these are, have got no teeth. So the outgoing chief executive of NHS England has just um, uh, sent out a call to action to health and well-being boards. So they're based in your local councils because what's happened is the public health agenda, which is probably the one that you've got quite a lot of synergy with, um, that those people have moved from health settings into local authorities and they are part of health and well-being boards and the King's Fund, if you look up King's Fund and put health and well-being boards, there's a huge paper on the, on the engagement of the third sector and other people in creating health and well-being. So we're in massive... Uh, uh, a massive change um, in some of the ways that some of the speakers have described and some of us are more receptive to that conversation than others because some of us have been doing it for a longer time so I agree with Paul I think it's about making relationships and perhaps making relationships via opportunities from some of the people who visit your museums and start with them and track them backwards to whoever they see, either their GP or um, if they've got a dementia or mental health issue, the local trust. Um, so there would be some of my thoughts. But I don't think there's an easy answer. And to be honest, some trusts have arts coordinators. A lot don't. A lot will be cutting them as, as we move forward. So it's about people finding people who are innovative. But I think you have the opportunity to, um, and Carol might, um, Carol Rogers who spoke earlier might be doing this on behalf of Liverpool but you have the opportunity to uh, respond to the consultation on health and wellbeing boards.
Hiya, Claire Benjamin, National Museums, Liverpool. I just wanted to ask about impact and, and the value. Was, was there a convincing job anywhere down the line where, where, I suppose, with working with you as partners in terms of the value of what the cultural sector can bring? Was it, was it bringing new ideas? Was, did we have to convince? Mm. Or was it a lot simpler than that? I think from an NHS perspective, Claire, as you know, your, your, your million footfall uh, was, pr was a pretty convincing argument in terms of, in terms of reach. Um, in relation to um, the stickability of that, we know that the people who have been through the museum and have gone through the smart house get it, and they get it in a different way. It's far easier to influence people's opinions when they're outside of the NHS and care system mm. than it is when they're inside. So... Mm. Um, I think scale and the takeaways that the, 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 the museums and the wider cultural offer can, uh, can make. Um, I, in terms of impact um, with regard to the House of Memories, I think it speaks for itself. Um, you know, I've heard Alistair Burns and the National, uh, the National Dementia Czar, um, you know, talking about the success of the House of Memories and I guess in sheer the amount of people um, that you've had through the training, that's a massive impact, isn't it? And it speaks for itself about mm. um, the amount of people that you've touched and really um, opened up a different way of working with people with dementia. Mm. And I think, you know, even if people don't listen initially, certainly um, riding on the um, kind of public awareness of that, that demonstrates its, mm. its success, doesn't it, certainly? I mean, I'd like to just come in on that. I think you've got a massive pull. You're very, very good at getting messages out clearly in an accessible form. We're not in the NHS. Sometimes we're a bit boring and a bit obtuse and a bit into detail. I think you've got you know, such wonderful ideas and imagination. I think by working together can really harness um, some of those skills collectively. I just wanted to finish really by, I was really struck with um, Ricardo's um, presentation at the start when he talked about the museum is a school and underneath he said, artists learn to communicate and the public learns to make connections. But I think today and through the conversations that we're having now and into the future, we can learn to co-create health and well-being together so that our citizens can live a life of purpose and meaning. And we know, if any of you have read uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, we know that one of the most important and powerful things in life in terms of health and well-being and living a life that feels satisfying, that where we can flourish rather than just survive, meaning is really important. And I think you create, we can create meaning and opportunity and a place of belonging for people together. And I think that's something really worth investing on in. So thanks very much. I think that closes our session. Thank Thanks for listening. Thank you very much um, to colleagues on the panel. Fantastic presentations. And we'll be around for the rest of the day. Happy to catch up with you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.